0: And it has it has a lot to do, uh, particularly for healthcare providers, in trans elders not wanting to access healthcare. Some figures for you: uh, 19% of trans people across the lifetime have had medical care refused to them because they're transgender. Wow. Um, and there are instances where. Uh, Insurance companies have said that broken, broken arm is related to you being transgender, we're not gonna cover it. So there's been some really egregious stuff. Um, 50% of trans people have had to train their medical providers on trans issues. So you're going in saying, this is the problem, and this is what I've researched on the internet, and this is what I think you should do, which some people might think is really exciting and exhilarating, and and most of us, when we're not feeling well, want someone to take care of us, not not be in a position of of creating them. Um, And in terms of trans people postponing medical care, 28% have postponed medical care at some point due to mistreatment and 48% due to inability to afford. Um, That was before the Affordable Care Act picked up some of us um, and we (laughs) may well be returning to that soon. So there's lots of reasons why people um, resist even going to get health care.
1: I'm Dr. Regina Kett. I'm a board certified clinical psychologist and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the psychology of aging podcast to answer some of the most common questions I get about aging questions about mental health and wellness changes in the brain, like with dementia relationships and sex caregiving and even end of life. Like I say, in my therapy groups, no topic is off topic. We just have to have a healthy way of talking about it. So if you're an older adult or caring for one, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Did you know that by 2034, in less than 15 years, there will be more adults 65 and older than children under the age of 18. 20% of these older adults will have a mental health concern. And here's the thing. Mental health concerns are highly treatable in older adults. There is a common misconception that depression is a normal part of aging. In fact, depression is not a normal part of aging. Mental health providers need to be skilled and thoughtful around the mental health needs of older adults, and I offer training programs that address just that. There are three main training programs that I offer. One is on mental health care of older adults. It's great for mental health agencies or mental health providers. The next is on sexual health and aging, but not just any sexual health. It's on sexual health in the context of dementia disorders. And what happens in the context of dementia disorders when the person may have diminished capacity to make a decision around sexual interactions? That's great for senior care communities. And finally, on equity and inclusion in senior care. And this is great for mental health or senior care communities. If you'd like to learn more about my training programs, head on over to my website. That's www.dr, for Dr. Regina K-O-E-P-P, K-O-E-P-P dot com. I'll see you there, and I hope that you check out some of the training opportunities. This is Transgender Awareness Week. Transgender Awareness Week is a week when transgender people and their allies, like me, take action to bring attention to the transgender community by educating the public. This education includes describing who transgender people are, sharing stories and experiences, and advancing advocacy around the issues of prejudice, discrimination, and violence that affects the transgender community. This week leads up to the Transgender Day of Remembrance on November 20th. This day comes every year, and on this day, we honor the memory of transgender people whose lives were lost in acts of anti-transgender violence. I hope that you join me on November 20th in taking a moment of silence and thinking about the lives lost over this past year. In honor of Transgender Awareness Week, I am devoting today's episode to transgender aging. And I am so excited to introduce today's guest. Lori Cook Daniels has been working on both LGBT and aging issues since 1974. In the 90s, she was a primary staff person for the National Center on Elder Abuse. She founded the Transgender Aging Network in 1998 and in 2000 became the policy and program director. For FORGE, a 26-year-old national transgender and SAFA, that stands for Significant Others, Friends, Family, and Allies, organization that specializes in transgender aging and victims of violence. FORGE's Transgender Aging Network was a founding partner in the National Resource Center on LGBT Aging and remains its primary transgender expert. If you all haven't seen or been to the website, the National Resource Center on LGBT Aging, you have to go and check it out. Laurie Cook Daniels, thank you so much for joining me on the Psychology of Aging podcast today. I am thrilled that you're here. I wonder if you would start by uh, sharing about yourself and the Trans Aging Network. Thank you very much for inviting me here. I was... Um, a
0: long time lesbian with a partner that when we first got together, she told me that uh, she wanted to transition to male. Um, But this was in the eighties. And because I was a lesbian activist, I said, no way. So that's the way we left it for nine years. And, um, then when I finally saw the light and said, you know, go for it. Um, Uh, She did transition to male, and we did find some transgender community. Now, I had been doing LGBT aging work for 20, 30 years at that point, uh, and people began to ask me about transgender aging because it made sense to them uh, that I would know and I didn't know. So I founded the Transgender Aging Network. This was in 1998, in order to try and network people who were doing research or uh, serving trans elders or interested in the topic so that we could begin to um, collect our our cumulative knowledge and um, start start figuring out what we knew and what we didn't know. the Lister, that's because that's what we were doing in the 90s, the listserv was open and we had a number of trans elders join, which is, was no surprise. But what they wanted was for the physicians and the mental health care providers and the other people on the network to answer questions about their transitioning, which of course is really important, but I, I didn't set it up set up the listserv so that professionals had to provide free consultation. So we quickly spun off Elder TG, which is another listserv that um, supports trans elders. And we define that as 50 and up and close partners and uh, family members. So we've had some siblings. Uh, We certainly have had a number of partners and that provides peer support so that people are, Um, sharing their knowledge based on what they've experienced and other people that they've talked to. And that has, that also was started in 1998 and is still going. And in fact, during the COVID era is for some reason we haven't figured out um, attracting a lot of new members. So.
1: um, Wonderful. That's where we are. And then what is the difference between the transgender aging network and FORGE?
0: So the, the Transgender Aging Network and Elder TV were both founded in 1998. And um, I moved to be with the co-founder of FORGE in 2000. So at that point, we just pulled it under the the FORGE umbrella. Um, FORGE is a national transgender anti-violence organization. Wonderful. It's mostly anti-violence work, but we have the Transgender Age Network, we've got a uh, support group for parents of trans children and youth. Um, so we, we still dabble in, in non-victimization issues.
1: When we were meeting to prepare for this interview, you shared with me two important experiences to be mindful of when thinking about working with older transgender folks. You were sharing with me the difference between transitioning later in life versus transitioning earlier in life. Yes, and that's it. Really opened my eyes. And can you share a little bit about that with us now? Yes,
0: we are in a very um, kind of unique period of time um, because of the discrimination and um, and actually the internet has a big part to do with this. In that trans elders, um, people who are elderly. Elders now um, were grew up in some in some cases before even Christine Jorgensen. They didn't know about transgender people. They may have known that they didn't feel right. They may have called themselves uh, of the other gender, but there was very little information and no social support for changing genders. Um, so what happened was that when the internet came, um, started spreading, people had access to information that they had never had before. So many people found out about transgender people through the internet. Um, the internet also, uh, spawned some, um, other things or it came at the same time of like the listservs and the um, um what what did we used to call them um where people dialogued on aol um you know those sorts of things and so there began to be a lot more information and support for transgender people so what happened is that um for the people who are elders now they lived A big chunk of their lives when there was no word for what they were, let alone support for what they were. And that's why we have a large percentage of trans people who are transitioning in their 50s, 60s, 70s, um, because it's the first time in their lives that they've really been able to do it. Now, there always were some really brave pioneers who did transition decades ago. Excuse me. And those people are now elders too. So we've got two different kinds, I think, two different uh, (coughs) general character uh, groups of trans elders. Uh, The group that lived most of their lives as the other gender, um, trying to um, if, for instance, if they were born male, they, they often went into the military or they went into really macho occupations in order to try and um, push themselves into masculinity. So that's one of the reasons we have more trans vets than the population. Um, and of course, then we've got the other group that um, lived most of their lives. In, in their preferred gender so they have um they have two different issues or overlapping issues but uh, but different issues um, obviously the people who've been trans for decades have no need to be saying how do I come out to my family or how do where do I find a physician or that kind of stuff so that's often what happens on elder TG is. We get new people in, and they're they're getting information on how do
1: I start. Yeah, and then the experience of of transitioning earlier in life, how does that affect the aging process?
0: Well, um, some of the people that transitioned a long time ago survived by going stealth, maybe even to the point of where even family members did not know that they're transgender. So, um, because almost none of those people have have been able to surgically change their whole body, what that means is if they get ill or they need intimate care, they're at risk of literal exposure. and, and being identified as being transgender. And that is very, very scary. Um, it opens up the possibility of discrimination, which they've spent their lifetime trying to avoid by, by not telling people they're transgender. So as a result, we get some people that just refuse to have any kind of care at all um, and would, would quite literally rather, rather die than uh, be in a position where their um, transgender identity might become known.
1: What a bind. I mean, what an emotional bind that you would, because the risk is you would be exposed and and rejected or exposed and humiliated or? Um, it's it,
0: uh, rejected, humiliated, made fun of. Um, depending on the caregiver, you might be um, uh, exposed to religious um, Exhortations, you know, you're going to hell, um, you're a sinner. Yes. Um, yes. So there's a wide number of things that could happen. So moral judgment
1: and right. spiritual right. persecution.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Also, one of the things one of the issues is if someone has been trying to keep their transgender history or, or status um, secret. One of the big issues is are they going to out me? If somebody finds out, are they going to tell everybody else? Um, so the the potential for negative repercussions gets huge. It's not just one person.
1: I've also had the experience of working with older transgender folks where they have successfully transitioned to their gender identity and have had, uh, affirming surgeries and have taken hormone replacement therapy. And then as they age in, in combination with other medical problems and medications have made the decision to stop hormone replacement therapy because of uh, medical recommendations due to interaction effects and so on. Mm-hmm. And so then have the experience of uh, some of the features changing. Yes which is, can be very upsetting and requires, um, adjustment, I think to the physical changes that happen when you have to stop hormone replacement therapy after you've worked so hard to have your, um, appearance fit your inner world, your inner experience. And so have you, have you noticed that? And how do you, do you, do you work with people on coming to terms with these transitions? Um,
0: Yes. Now, anyone that has gone through menopause knows that hormones um, have a huge effect on people's emotions, um, aside from all else, aside from how you're using the hormones. You know? um, so, yes, having, to, uh, having to, to reduce or go off hormones um, for medical reasons can be really emotionally difficult. Um, So, yeah, that comes up on Elder TG every once in a while. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an issue. We also need to be aware of um, the tendency of even healthcare professionals to believe that every problem a trans person has is related to their hormones. Um, So we have to be careful when we work with people to ensure that yes, this really is, yes, this is the hormones. Um, Yeah, we just recently, the community just recently lost a very beloved leader at age 58 to blood clots. um, And she used to smoke. And that's, those two, the female hormones and smoking are really dangerous for blood clots. And yet, on the other hand, other people have died of leg clots. So um, sometimes that there's also a tendency to believe, well, that had to be a hormone problem when, in fact, no, it's a human
1: problem. Yes. And she knows the risks. She gets to decide. Right. Yeah. And... Um, I think the other piece that i I notice in in mental health work is that not all mental health problems are a result of gender identity okay. <laughs> that people can have frustrations with their partner or their other issues and um, and that is not connected necessarily to gender identity that's connected to the relationship or all sorts of other things well
0: i I had as common soapbox for quite a while about just because you have depression in our transgender um, settling into the gender you prefer is not necessarily going to take away the depression because my concern was we have such a high rate of suicide in our community. And I, you know, if you, if you go to all the problem, all the work of, Changing your gender in some way and then end up still depressed. I was afraid that that was adding too much. So um, we've we've done some work trying to get people to recognize that depression and anxiety can be related to not being who you want to be, uh, or who you think you are, or who you are. Um, they can be separate as well. Yes.
1: Since we're talking about mental health concerns, can you share a bit about some of the mental health concerns that older transgender folks do experience? The big ones
0: for uh, the the whole lifespan of um, trans people are depression and anxiety. Um, And I haven't done the comparison to see how much more we have than the general public, and it's gonna be really different in COVID now. <laughs> but depression and anxiety are big ones. And in fact, um, almost every uh, youth in where the parents are in my support group, almost every single one of them has depression or anxiety or both. Um, so suicidality is very high. Forty-one um, percent of trans people have attempted suicide at oh some gosh. point. Oh gosh! And then uh, the other note that I made for this call was not people are not paranoid; they are worried. Um, they have a real fear of what other people are going to do.
1: I'd say justifiable fear.
0: Yes, and that tension, um, we call it minority stress, but um, it's it's very, it's very wearing. Um, it definitely can contribute to depression and anxiety. Um, and I think I have begun to consider the possibility that the last four years, the number of official acts that were tra- anti-transgender Maybe pushing us up to something that I can't even you know some some level of of feeling under siege yes. that we haven't seen before,
1: yeah, and the level of collective trauma is so high, right, yes, when your and own
0: government is very clearly against you,
1: right and potentially community. And I mean, it's, it must be terrifying at some level and it's not paranoia if it's true. (laughs) Right. right? So um, maybe it's that levels of intensity. Yeah. And I, and I'd say that's probably a fair response given the traumatic, the level of trauma that transgender folks experience on a, on a large scale.
0: And it has it has a lot to do, uh, particularly for healthcare providers, in trans elders not wanting to access healthcare. Some figures for you: uh, 19% of trans people across a lifetime have had medical care refused to them because they're transgender, wow. um, and there are instances where. Uh, Insurance companies have said that broken, broken arm is related to you being transgender, we're not gonna cover it. So there's been some really egregious stuff. Um, 50% of trans people have had to train their medical providers on trans issues. So you're going in saying, this is the problem and this is what I've researched on the internet and this is what I think you should do, which some people might think is really exciting and exhilarating. And and most of us, when we're not feeling well, want someone to take care of us, not not be in a position of of creating them. Um, And in terms of trans people postponing medical care, 28% have postponed medical care at some point due to mistreatment and 48% due to inability to afford. Um, That was before the Affordable Care Act picked up some of us, um, and we (laughs) may well be returning to that soon. So there's lots of reasons why people um, resist even going to get health care.
1: Yes. And then that I imagine increases rates of disability uh, in older adulthood and then increases um, care need if you have higher levels of disability. And we know that preventive medicine and engaging in the healthcare system for medical treatment when we have medical needs helps to prevent disability. And so if there are all of these barriers for older transgender folks to Getting to the doctor and then receiving uh, affirming care when you get there, and those are barriers, then oh. and then there's the you identified the socioeconomic factor, which is not being able to afford it
0: right.
1: and and there is a long literature describing discrimination in workplace for transgender folks. and so access to jobs and equitable. Access to jobs, even you were describing as a lesbian woman experiencing discrimination, and rates of discrimination are higher for transgender folks. Mm-hmm. And then that affects, you know, income, and income affects your ability to afford healthcare, and and it's just a domino system. Right. Now, family relationships are also really important when we talk about um, deepening our understanding of the experiences of older transgender folks. Can you share about? older transitioners and common family dynamics? Well, the big
0: one is the partners. Um, because what happens um, with the partners, and this is not um, not understood even by some trans people. Uh, it, when, because our sexual orientation labels are so binary, just like the gender labels, When a partner um, transitions genders, go from one gender to the other binary, what that does to the partner is changes their public sexual orientation. So for instance, when my partner transitioned from female to male, we went from a visible lesbian couple to one that looked heterosexual. Right which meant that I had to give up or constantly fight for my own identity. Um, And that's that's a real issue, particularly for, um, let's say it's a woman in a, a 55 year old woman whose husband transitions. And she's always been brought up to think that gay people or some other species that weren't as good. And now she's gonna be seen as a lesbian out in the world. Um, that's a big issue. And the the irony of the transitioning person gets to be seen in the world the way they wanna be seen. And the partner loses exactly the same thing.
1: Wow. So
0: there there is a tension there that I think we don't talk about enough. Because um, often the spouse is told, um, well, they're told, they're told two, two binary things. One is you absolutely have to leave because obviously you can't, this marriage can't survive. Or, or they're told by those of us that are more socially um, advanced, maybe, that you should be supporting your, your partner you know what's your problem and there isn't there isn't enough um there isn't enough awareness of the cost to the partner in my opinion the other thing is that they're really that people really do have sexual orientations as in this is the kind of body i want to be next to at night and some of us can switch, and some of us can't. And you know, that's that's not always given enough um, respect either. Um, although they can change. Early on, I was I was up um, here with a lesbian woman whose partner transitioned to male. And I would get off my conversations with her and say, this is never (laughs) going to survive. She's not going to, she's not going to make it. Not, not judging it, but just not judging in a negative way, but judging like, Oh, there's too much here. She's too, she's too settled in, in um, the lesbian mode. And she did make it and they were very happy. So, you know, Sometimes sometimes people switch even
1: when we think they're not going to. This tension that you're talking about is so profound. I I am just struck at, yeah, I have heard those binaries. There's really nothing in between. Either you stay with the person or you don't. <laughs> Either mm-hmm. you come to terms with it or you don't. And I appreciate that it's the the transitioning partner is moving into the identity that they uh, identify with and long for and feel most authentic in. And then the partner has to also shift the tension. I think and friction is so important to hold space for, because I think if we don't hold space for it, it is less likely to succeed. It's less likely to help the partner to work through and sort of grieve some aspects of that the partner's uh, life and identity for um, in support of their partner and in support of themselves. So there are lots of um, emotional and identity journeys that we're talking about and then relational journeys that we're talking about. And I really, I um, thank you for sharing that with us because it's Helping to deepen my own understanding and to hold space for people's unique experiences in the same relationship. Right,
0: and often if the transgender person um, doesn't doesn't often the transgender person believes that if I can convince you why I believe my gender, you know, then you'll go along. And it's it's there is a relationship issue here. That's far beyond that, Um, which does does go to my second point about the adult children. When you're transitioning older, your children are often adults, and whether they accept the transition or not is uh, kind of a toss up. We don't have the actual statistics, but um, some uh, children uh, get on board and some children do not. Uh, and we have not really studied about who is who, but um, that's just like the general public. Some people can get their minds around it and, and some people cannot. But what um, what does happen is if there are grandchildren, if the adult child does not approve of their parents' transition, they may cut the grandchildren off. And that is um, that is one of the, worst heartbreaks that I see on Elder TG is the grandparents that can't talk to their grandchildren, that there is a level of pain in that, that
1: seems to be incredibly high. So much grief and a loss of legacy and that, uh, you know, parenting is hard. I think grandparenting is when you get the real, right, you get the the real back. Yeah, it's like the icing on the cake, you know, it's hard to make the cake, but then you just smear the icing on and, oh, yes, so much grief and loss and missed opportunity and loss of legacy. Yeah. Earlier, we talked about some of the barriers to engaging in mental health care and medical care. When we were preparing for this interview, you brought up such an important topic about the complexity of having mental health providers in the role of gatekeeper for transitioning. Can you talk a little bit about that? For many years,
0: what um, the standards of care for taking care of trans people were the Harry Benjamin um, standards of care. They're now known as the WPATH. What WPATH path the guidelines have required um, is for many years, they required people to live a year as as the gender that they were moving to even before they could get such things as hormones and surgery, which um, depending on your physical body could be extremely difficult um, and extremely opening people up to to public problems, um, violence and discrimination. And um, what still remains is that in many cases, surgeons in particular, and sometimes uh, the physicians that prescribe hormones, require their patients to basically have a letter from a mental health therapist who has treated them for some period of time, and the letter needs to say, essentially, um, this person believes they are of the opposite sex, but they're still sane. (laughs) It's, it's, you know, the stamp of approval of it's okay to uh, to give hormones or do surgery, gen, gender related surgery on this person. Sometimes people need those letters from two therapists, depending on what the surgeon or the or the physician requires. So what that means is that transgender people, and this is truer in the past than it is now have had to have relationships with therapists to even get the health care that they needed. Well because the therapists in had had that gatekeeping to those important things that trans people wanted trans people the the early literature from the the um, people that worked uh, worked with trans people said they lied a lot. Well they probably did because they didn't want to jeopardize um, their chances of getting hormones and, ther- and um, surgery. Um, I We know people, because we do so much work with people with trauma histories that many trans people never tell their therapists about their trauma history because of the possibility that the therapist would say, well, then you you're not, you know, you're not able to be. You're not a good candidate for hormones or surgery. Um, obviously, that means the, the therapy is less effective. Than it should be if you're if you're hiding important things in order to um, present a facade to your therapist. But it also means that when we look at the statistics, that the number of trans people that have been in therapy is incredibly high, really, really high. So, um, but when there is an, uh, when you're not going to therapy for your letter, it's called the letter, like it had a big capital L. Um, but you need a therapist for run-of-the-mill depression, or you've got couples therapy that you need to do or something like that. There's this, all of this baggage of these were the people that held my, Identity and my history in their hands. So it's a really um, it's a really sticky uh, uh, relationship.
1: Yes, the word that stands out to me is trust, and the nature of putting therapists in a role of determining if somebody has. The psychological capacity to endure a transition sets this dynamic of mistrust and fear in the relationship that needs to be the most trusted. Right. And so it would make sense to me that people would lie. Who do you lie to? People you don't trust right. and um, people who have power over you, who could harm you. Right. And so you'll do whatever it takes to, to keep safe and to, to get your needs met. Right. And that might include lying. And then so if you do need mental health care down the road, you carry with you, we call it in, in therapy and in psychotherapy transference, you carry with you that experience and you transfer it onto the new therapist, that mm-hmm. that right. mistrust and that the history of um, power imbalance and uh, inequitable care, we don't put others through that same level of scrutiny. I can appreciate that there are so many barriers and with a group of folks with high rates of trauma and with high rates of mistrust, my hope is that mental health can begin to shift and provide affirming, thoughtful, mm-hmm. holistic care to trans folks, just as, as I would want for myself, right. but it's not the gatekeeper role is not as standard. Is that what you were saying? Well,
0: there's now um, more physicians, um, and I think surgeons that are doing informed consent, which is what, which is the approach that the rest of us have all the time in medical care. The doctor says to you, well, I think you ought to be on this drug, but these are the possible side effects and, um, and you get to make the decision. Are you going to accept those side effects? And that's what um, that's what many people are moving to with trans people is informed consent of let's go over what these hormones will do and won't do. And, you know, what you can expect and what you're risking then, then you decide.
1: Yes, you understand the risks and benefits and you make a decision that's consistent with what you need. So what can then providers do to create affirming spaces? So what can mental health providers do to create affirming spaces and begin to, to shift the tide, so to speak?
0: Um, well, I do, I do have some, some ideas. The, the very first thing, the most basic thing is you have got to get the name and pronouns correct. This is not an option that has to, you have to get the name and pronouns correct. And amazingly, um, even though sometimes it seems difficult, it actually only requires, what name and pronoun would you like me to use for you? <laughs> and that's all it takes, except that you gotta remember it. But, but that's, that's critical. Um, and then if you've got, I know a lot of mental health professionals work alone, but if you've got a receptionist or you work in a clinic or whatever, everybody else has to get that too. I mean, if somebody, um, I, I tell physicians, it doesn't matter how trans-competent um, you get, if the receptionist makes a mistake when the patient first walks in, because the patient won't sit in the waiting room. They believe. You know, so you, you got to have, um, you got to have everybody trained. One of the things that we most um, emphasize with all kinds of um, healthcare professionals, including mental health professionals, is what we call "know and tell why." Trans people get subjected to the most obnoxious questions about their genitals. Partners get get asked questions about their their partners' genitals um, they get asked you know what was your your real name they get asked a lot we get asked a lot of really strange questions um, and as a result we um, really get our backs up around questions we're, we're really nervous So what um, providers can do is think through, the questions they're asking, and um, uh, figure out how are you going to use this information, and how is this information going to benefit the client? Um, for example, for a non-trans example, uh, you're doing and you're a benefits person, and you're you um, You say to someone, in order to figure out if you're available, if you're eligible for this program. I need to know your income. So it's different. It's a different question than what's your income. And so that's what providers need to do with the questions that they ask trans people. The reason I'm asking this is, and then ask the question, yes. because otherwise, uh, trans people are going to be in general, I mean, this is a generality, but are going to have their backs up. Like if the, if it's not obvious why you're asking me this question, I'm going to worry that it's, it's an inappropriate question or it's, you're just curious. Um, And that happens a lot. I went in with my partner one time when he had one of those colds, head colds that just, you can see it. (laughs) You can just see it. And we went into the, to the physician and the physician said, why are you on testosterone? And my partner said, well, I'm transgender. And the physician said, well, have you had surgery? Do you have, you know, do you have a penis? And it's like, we're here for a head cold. You can see we're here
1: for a head cold. My penis does not influence my sinuses, thank you.
0: You know, so when you get those kind of questions repeatedly, it it really helps for providers to think through the question again. Know and tell why. Why am I asking this question and tell the client why. So that, um, and that builds trust. That builds trust. Um, Privacy is even more important for most trans people than it is for non-trans people. I mean, we're doing HIPAA and stuff, but it's much more important. And one of the things that I notice with a lot of service providers is that they think they have to tell other service providers that someone is trans. Well, that's personal medical uh, information, and maybe you don't have to tell them that. Um, It definitely raises the exposure level of the trans person when people do that. Another thing is to follow the lead, um, particularly around body part names. If you're if you're talking about um, body parts of follow the client's lead. If I have what you think are large breasts and I call it my chest, call it my chest, um, trans people often use body part names. They, they can make up new body part names. They can use other body part names. It's a way of helping cope with the body dysphoria. Um, and so you can really show respect um, and cut down on the trauma. <laughs> because if I said, this is this is my chest, and you said, well, you know, you're pretty big breasted, um, that, can be, that can be traumatizing. And the last thing that I wanted to mention is be an advocate. Um, Find out if your trans client would like your help. It needs to be with informed consent. But if they would like your help with something, because it is exhausting out there. I mean, and I think more people can get this now with COVID. <laughs> you know, it's exhausting out there. Well, it's been exhausting for trans people all along because you're nav- navigating so much stuff. So if service providers can be advocates um, with
1: consent, that can be really helpful. When you say advocates with consent, give, give us an example.
0: This is not exactly on, top, on point, but we had... Um, a trans man that we were working with that had gone through attempted gender conversion as a kid. And it was really awful. And now he was having major, major depression issues, but he wouldn't go to a therapist because of, because of his trauma history. And so we got his permission to talk with, a therapist ahead of time. We got his permission to go with him to therapy. Um, so that, you know, it's almost literal hand-holding. Yes. Um, that can be, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, of, of helping interface
1: with other systems. Oh, thank you for that example. One of the things we talk about in mental health care as well, and in medical systems, is a warm handoff. Yes. And you use the trust that you've established with your client or patient and by um, supporting them in moving into a new room or if you're in the same medical system or supporting them and starting with a new therapist and maybe having a group Zoom call yeah. um, that you can help to transfer your, the trust that you and your client have established or you and the transgender individual have established and then transfer that trust to the new relationship. It just helps so much with the, the, the transitions of care. In fact, I was working with an older transgender adult. The therapist was leaving and the therapist had worked with the older transgender adult for many years. Uh, the therapist was leaving the system and transitioning that in the older person to me and we had an overlap meeting where I came into her therapy room, met the older transgender adult, answered questions, shared about myself, who I am, what my style is, just so the older transgender person could know me a little bit. And it Mm -hmm. wouldn't just, it wouldn't be so scary. It wouldn't be so uh, foreign, Mm -hmm. uh, unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. And then she is, was her preferred pronoun uh, would know where to go, would know who to look for, would have a sense Mm -hmm. of security when she got there and it Mm -hmm. really helped. And then I worked with her for years and then, Mm -hmm. and then um, after, after that time she didn't need as consistent therapy, but um, so we didn't have the same warm handoff because it wasn't needed anymore, but, but I would have done the same thing. And I had Mm -hmm. done the same thing with other folks so thank you for saying that. So that is an act of advocacy and it's an act of um, consideration for people with higher levels of trauma, high, higher levels of mistrust in a system and just ways to build some bridges. So thank you for that, Laurie. I really appreciate it. It does
0: remind me of something that I didn't say about providers that really is important of um, know who your referral is. <laughs> Make sure... When you refer someone that that they are um, that they are trans competent, uh, we we recently had a, an experience, and I'm just telling you this because we're a trans organization, and you'd think we had it all together. Um, we had a psychiatrist recommended to us, and we wanted to have a um, Zoom meeting where the psychiatrist addressed medications with trans people, since so many of us are on medications, not just hormones, but for our trauma stuff, Um, plus the normal things like high blood pressure and that sort of thing. And he said horrible things. He wasn't intending to but he said horrible things. Like he said, well, you're gonna he said to someone who asked a question, well, you're gonna have to educate your psychiatrist. And we're like, no, you know, by the time someone's going to a psychiatrist, they are not in a position to be educating their, their psychiatrist. And he said a number of things like that. And we were just, uh, we were beside ourselves because we had some really fragile, people on the Zoom, and we had to do a lot of work afterwards, and um, we went back to the person who had recommended him, and he says, well, I I thought he was really good. Well, maybe in general, but he hadn't had a clue about trans people, and he didn't do any of his homework, and he did damage, so make sure your referrals are good.
1: Thank you, yes.
0: And it can damage not only, you know, it not only can a failed relationship with a new person, but it could not it can blow back on you.
1: Yeah, and and folks trust with the system as a whole. Right. Was well, if the response is you have to educate your provider, that's saying providers are not educated. Yeah, well yeah. and are not going to be. Right. right. Yeah. And aren't going to do their homework. Right. So, so say we have a listener who is a family member and wants to learn more about creating an affirming space for their loved one. what would you recommend?
0: We have a self-help guide for partners of transsexual assault providers, which does talk a little bit about relationship issues um, and I think any of the um, any of the basic transgender aging uh, publications that I uh, that I sent to you might be helpful. Um, the one uh, resource that I particularly wanted to call attention to was um, I Have a New Transgender Client, Now What? This one was written with a home health aide or a nursing home aide in mind of answering the basic questions that tend to come up. What, what do I call my patient? Who do, uh, who should they room with? Um, what am I going to see when their clothes are off? I mean, you know, we did, we, we went to some of those, those questions. What happens if my religion tells me, you know, not that this is not a good thing. So that particular,
1: um, can I uh, stop you? That sounds like an incredible resource. I'm going to have a podcast just on that.
0: I'm very proud of that, that resource because it's nothing I didn't find anything out there that was like that. And I think we need to provide that kind of assistance yes to the people that are taking care because we don't we don't think very much about training home health aides on this kind of stuff We're training um, nursing home aids, and yet that's the kind of stuff they're going to think about. So um, that there's some basic stuff in there of, that that family members might be able to use, but otherwise, I think we're again talking about use the pronoun and, and name and some of the the basic respect issues. Mm-hmm.
1: And for partners, you were talking earlier about the um, tension between identity, the identity tension. Yeah, I really recommend
0: that partners find at least an online group that supports partners of transgender people. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think the first of all, the very first thing a transitioning Um, the partner of a transitioning person needs to know is some marriages make it. It is possible because oftentimes people think, well, I have to, I have to divorce. And it's like, no, you don't. Um, And we'll show you some marriages that that survived. Um, And then there needs to be a place to work through, um, you know, does this mean I'm a lesbian? Do I have to identify as bisexual? What if I don't like their body when they're on hormones? Um, this is the kind of thing that that really um, needs to be worked through. A few part, a few couples can work through it together. A lot of couples, it seems, cannot work through it together. They need they need a separate place. Yeah. So I would really recommend that um, partners find places online where they can talk to other partners. Um, And of course we do all always recommend therapy, (laughs) but even then it's, you know, we've heard horror stories of the therapists that, um, in fact, I went to an early conference where uh, a therapist came in and, and the, it was a partner's caucus and she came in and said, get with it. You know, you're supposed to support your your partner. And it's like, no, I don't. You know, I've done feminist work for a long time. You don't come in and tell me what to do.
1: <laughs> First of all, <laughs> I decide. Second of all, <laughs> hold space for me. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned Christine Jordan. Jorgensen. Jorgensen. Yeah, tell us who she is. Um, thank you for for
0: make, having me do that. She was a former GI that transitioned um, and had a surgery in Europe, and was the first really public transgender person when she came back to the U.S. So it's Christine Jorgensen. She was um, she was physically very beautiful and she really caught a lot of people's attention um because her trans her her transition made her look so different and she was public about it so that's the first time for most people if you're old enough that was probably the
1: first transsexual you you heard about christine jorgensen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You also shared with us, uh, shared with me that I will be sharing with our listeners, a lot of resources that are so important. You, um, I'm just going to review a few of them because I really want our listeners to go and check them out. Uh, And these will all be available in the show notes on the trans aging network, elder TG for transgender elders themselves, creating end of life documents, Medicare changes, trans. Uh, Gender Elders Sofa Roundtable. What is that? SOFA. SOFA. SOFA is
0: Significant Others, Friends, Family, and Allies. Um, It was coined in 95, and it was basically an attempt to open the trans community, which at that time defined itself as just trans people. And we were trying to, you know, uh, make people understand that no, (laughs) the family members we're also affected
1: yes okay and then for service providers the the guide that you we talked about earlier which I can't wait to read I have a new transgender client now what then creating equal access to quality health care for transgender patients transgender affirming hospital policies that sounds fantastic inclusive services for LGBT older adults a practical guide to creating welcoming agencies quick tips for caregivers of transgender clients. Wow. And then, um, because of uh, where we'll be airing this, right around Transgender Day of Remembrance, there are also really important uh, guides and resources around improving the lives of older transgender adults, abuse and violence directed at transgender elders and sexual violence, elder abuse, and sexuality of transgender adults age 50 and older, results of three surveys. I, Laurie, cannot thank you <laughs> enough for deepening my understanding, helping to reinforce the things that I do that are affirming, and, and also sharing with me other things that I can do, like um, holding space for the partner. You know, my, I have shared this throughout this interview, but my hope is that as mental health providers, as senior care providers, that we will do a better job for our older transgender adults that we will begin to dismantle some of the stigma that plagues Mm -hmm. um, plagues all of our systems Mm -hmm. and um, keeps people out of care and increases disability as a result and increases poverty as a result. And I, um, I just thank you so much for the work that you do and for educating us today And I can't wait to read all of these resources and to share them on on the show notes page. Thank you so much. All right, well, thank you. This has been a lovely interview. All right, if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released and then leave a review. Subscriptions and reviews help people to find this show. In wrapping up, it's important to share that the ideas expressed in this episode are mine alone And that information shared does not take the place of licensed medical or mental health care. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Lots of love to you and your family. Bye for now. Lena, do you think aging is scary? No. No? Why not? Because it makes us happy. Aging makes us happy? Yeah. I want to be
0: bigger and taller.